Open up, if you can, to book of 2 Samuel, chapter 20. We are getting towards the very end of King David's life. Actually, it's our last real sermon on David. And as you turn there, if you've ever been, been a parent, I've, have you ever wondered to yourself or questioned with your spouse saying, you know, how much violence is good for my child. So if my child's sitting there, have you ever said, now Johnny, don't watch that. There's too much blood. I don't want you desensitized by what you see. Or have you ever, wife, said to your husband, turn off that Mayweather and McGregor boxing stuff. Turn it off. Too much blood. Too much blood. Too much violence. Or have you ever driven past a car wreck and you tell your children, don't look. Don't look. Could be bad. Should we shield our children from violence and blood? Will they be damaged? Will we be damaged from seeing too much blood on newsreels or pictures of the catastrophe, maybe strewn bodies after some of the hurricanes? Would that damage us? Of course, violence is not what God intended. Some people would say it's evil. And red blood spilt is shocking. Blood is not something you want your loved one to see. The real shock I ever had was when I was about seven or eight, I saw firsthand a car accident. I was at this park with my cousin. We were standing on this mound, and you could see it. Really, it was what a driveway into a park in Ohio. And a car was going 70 miles an hour in it. And a family was coming out of it in a station wagon, and we saw it head on. You could hear it, just metal crunching. I remember the thing that I noticed the most was the streaks of red on a cracked windshield, just emblazoned in my mind. It was shocking. As a seven-year-old, I was shocked. And I personally believe freshly spilt blood is meant to shock us and to some degree offend us. There is now in some sophisticated Christian circles, when we talk about this blood, it's some sensible people in some sophisticated Christian circles do not like to accept that our faith is built on the back of a bloody man hanging on a cross. More and more, Christian theologians think the idea of a blood spilt is what God wanted is too brutal, it's uncivilized. Some writers are even running from the cross because they wonder what kind of father would allow their son to hang bloody on a tree. He must be some kind of sadist, if that's true. I read one writer who said we should not teach that the cross was God's plan because people might assume violence is okay. And violence is never okay. In fact, violence is evil. Is violence always evil? Is it always evil? And if it is, not only should we have some real problems with the cross, but how do we make any sense out of David's life? Because today we're going to come to the end of David's story. The man after God's own heart. The shepherd crowned king. 
He's the writer of poetry, the great psalmist who could sing on the harp. But make no mistake, David, to a degree, first and foremost, was a bloody warrior. His house is often known as the house of blood. Especially if you really tally up all the carnage that he saw throughout his life. It's drastic. And that's why the title of this message is House of Blood. I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 19. And I'm just going to show you the beginning of the end of David's story. There's actually two accounts of David's story. We have 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. And really the way I'm going to put it is 2 Samuel is the play-by-play announcer. He just tells us the facts. First Chronicles is the color commentary. They give us the inside story and what's really happening. But I'm just going to give you the facts to begin with, and then we'll go to color commentary secondly. But we begin in verse 9 of 2 Samuel 19. Remember, Absalom was king. last thing we remember is David's general killed Absalom, David's son, with three spears through his chest. He's hanging in a tree. Remember, he had that beautiful hair and he got caught trying to run away from Joab? Well, verse 8 of 2 Samuel 19 says, Then the king, this is David, after his son died, he arose and he took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. These are the ones that followed him out to the desert. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies... He saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? When the word of all Israel has come to the king, Judah is his tribe, and he's saying, Judah, you guys need to be the first ones to bring me back to the city. And then he says to Amasa, and Amasa was Absalom's general. Absalom put Amasa in charge. Joab was David's general. Absalom put Amasa in charge. And so David gives an olive branch to Amasa, and he says to uh, Actually, let's start in verse 12. You are my brothers. He's talking to the elders of Judah. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Verse 13, and say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Judah. It's an olive branch to try to bring Absalom's people back to David, so he's going to give Amasa, the general of Absalom's army, a peace treaty. Basically, I'll let you run my army. Verse 14, and David swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. So they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and bring the king over the Jordan. And the idea is that David ran away from Absalom, and now they're bringing him back over the Jordan, meaning he's going back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem, and this is the final days of David's reign. It's the last story of David as king. So what we have in the end of 19 
David comes home. He crosses back over the Jordan. People start joining him. He forgives some who betrayed him. He pays debt, pays back debt to those he owes. And he honors those who supported him when Absalom rebelled. So David is basically bringing goodwill at the end of chapter 19. And that takes us to chapter 20. So you have chapter 20 to 24, the last four chapters of David's reign. I, before I started reading it, I was hoping that King David, in the twilight of his years as sovereign, would be able to kick back, sit on his coat sofa, have, you know, a couple goblets of mellow wine. I know they, they drank wine back then, just so he could relax a little bit. I was hoping they'd be happier days, more peaceful. But honestly, as I started reading chapter 20, and when I read, I try to really imagine what's going on, try to picture what's going on. There's an awful lot of blood spilt in the last four chapters of 2 Samuel. I mean, a lot of blood. And reading through it, I really I wrestled with, here's David, a man after, why is the, even the end of his days so bloody? I mean, they're bloody. Let me give you a list of some of the things that happened. Open up to 2 Samuel 20. We won't go through them, but I'll point out certain verses. The first thing we see, we have a story of a horrible murder. Remember Amasa, Absalom's general? Well, David wanted him to go chase down this guy Sheba. We'll learn about Sheba in a second. And Amasa, he was basically not doing it. So Joab, David's general, goes up and makes this kind of like, he was kind of making this, gesture of kindness to Amasa at the great rock in Gibeah. says it takes, he takes Amasa by the beard to kiss him. He kisses him, but on his side he's got, a, he's got a sword and he plunges it into his gut. And look at what it says in 20 verse 10. Just picture this, 20 verse 10. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. And that's bloody. Lots of blood with that one. Then we have chapter 20, 11 through 22. We have this guy named Sheba. Sheba was one of Saul's descendants and he's mad at David. So he convinces all the other ten tribes of Israel to rebel once again. You know, Judah's on David's side, and he gets the rest of Israel. So Joab starts a hunt to get Sheba. Joab's a bad dude. And they chase him to this city called Abel, and he's stuck behind these walls in Abel. And they're going to break it down to get this guy Sheba. And this old lady comes out and goes, Joab, I'll take care of it. And she takes care of it in verse 22. Listen to verse 22. Then a woman, this is this nice old lady, Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. That's nice. <laughs> what? So they basically decapitate Sheba. Lots of blood with the decapitation. So then we get to chapter 21, 1 through 9. This is a really weird story. There's a famine for three years in David's reign. And he's like, why, why is there a famine? We can't grow anything. So David goes to make a request to God to reveal to him what's the problem. And God said, well, and, it, and this is going to be a tough one to follow. 
But basically, Joshua, hundreds of years before, remember the general Joshua? He was going to destroy all of the Canaanites. And this one group called the Gibeonites, they made a deal with Joshua. They kind of hoodwinked him. It's a long story, but Joshua promised the Gideonites he would never kill them. He'd let them stay in the land. Made a promise before God. Well, when Saul came in, he started killing the Gibeonites. He wanted to basically kill the whole bunch of them. And so what happened is after Saul died, Saul broke Joshua's vow before God. And so God honored that vow and started cursing Israel and gave them no rain for years. So when David found that out, he went to the Gibeonites and said, all right, how do we make this up to you? So look at verse 6 of chapter 21. It's really nice. Verse 6. Verse 6 says, uh, oh, let's start in verse 5. They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Talking about Saul. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them. Before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, okay, done deal. And then so we get in verse 9. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. They hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. So some of Saul's descendants, seven sons of Saul, were lynched on the mountain. It's kind of gory so far. This is only in the three chapters. Then you get to chapter 21, 18 to 22. We have this slaughtering of Goliath had four young sons. Remember Goliath, that guy that David cut the head off earlier? He's got four young sons, and David and his men kill all of his kin. So he wipes out the seed of Goliath, just destroys him. That's the end of chapter 21. Then we go, David gives these two amazing prayers, songs of deliverance in 22 and 23. But then we get to the end of 23, and then we have stories of David's mighty men. And David's mighty men were no slackers. Look at verse 8 of chapter 23. Just imagine this. These are David's mighty men and are recounting the victories. Chapter 23, verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men of David, Josheb, Besheth, Beth, Akteka, Maite. I can't read that. Anyhow, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear. One guy wielded his spear against 800 who he killed at one time. Kind of bloody. Not too good. And then we get to uh, verse 10. There's this other guy rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. He had it gripped so tight he couldn't take it off, kind of froze. It's kind of like when you're driving from here to California, you can't get your hand off the steering wheel. He's like that with the sword. He's fighting so hard. He killed 300 men. The Lord brought about a great victory. It's a lot of death. In chapter, verse 20 of that same chapter, and this guy Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabazil, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down into a, and struck a lion in a pit on the day when the snow had fallen. And that's supposed to give you a visual of this orange lion down in a pit during a snowy white day, and blood is on the red snow. And then it says in 21, he also struck down an Egyptian who also happened to be a very handsome man. The Bible gives some interesting little bylines. A handsome man, the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, 
But Benaiah went down to him with the staff, snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. So he takes it, thrusts it back in. Bloody! This is bloody stuff. And this isn't even talking about chapter 24. We read chapter 24 two weeks ago. Chapter 24, David numbers his men. And God sends an avenging angel. And that avenging angel smote 70,000 people. Could you imagine if they said Hurricane Irma just wiped out 70,000 people? We wouldn't know what to do. This is one city. This is a lot of carnage. Why so much blood? Seriously. This is the Bible we're talking I don't want my kids reading this. <laughs> it's kind of like I want my kids reading Precious Moments Bible where a fuzzy guy is holding a fuzzy lamb and they're feeding him candy. That's nice. This is bad. I don't want my kids hearing these stories. So what's going on? These are the facts. Remember, 2 Samuel is the play-by-play. I want you to go to 1 Chronicles. You got 1 and 2 Kings and go to 1 Chronicles. Chronicles is from the viewpoint of the priests. And they're going to give you the what I'm going to call color commentary. They give you an insider's perspective to understand what's going on. And I want to take you to an amazing event. Go to chapter 28 of 1 Chronicles. Watch how it reads. This is David's final days. I call this the farewell banquet of the king. It's an incredibly majestic scene. Chapter 28, verse 1. Try to picture it. Remember David's back in Jerusalem, back on the throne. People are supporting him. In verse 1, David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel. So you can imagine all the important government officials probably wearing insignias and robes and glittering gold. It also says the officers of the division that serve the king. So all the generals are there. It says the commanders of the thousands, and the commanders of the hundreds, and the stewards of all the property and livestock. So you have all of the rich men, all of David's servants, and then all of the king and all of his sons. So you have all of the princes and their wives. And then you have the palace officials, those who run David's palace. And the mighty men were there, the champions, when they walked in. Hey, there's Benaiah, that guy who killed the tiger. Don't talk to him. Don't, don't look at him. That one guy whose hand, he probably couldn't hold a glass because his hand is still frozen. This is an amazing spectacle, honestly. This would be like the final farewell of the president. This is bigger than the president leaving. This is David's last hurrah to some degree. So verse 2, watch how it reads. The king David rose to his feet. So he's probably grabbing a goblet, raising to his feet, and everybody hushed silence. And they listened to him. And he's going to give them insight on what's going on with his life. Listen to verse 2. Then King David rose to his feet, and he said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for the building. He did. He got all kind of stuff to build the temple, gold, linen, 
wood, all kind of stuff he gathered. Verse 3, but God said to me, you may not build a house for my name. No, David, you're not going to do it. Why not? For you're a man of war and you've shed blood, a lot of blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader and in the house of Judah, my father's house. And among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over Israel. So the reason why I can't build God's house is I'm a man of blood. He chose me for that. If we keep reading, verse 5, And all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, It is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, where I have chosen him to be my son. And I will be his father, and I will establish his kingdom forever. That's David's grand message. Here's two things we can learn. Number one, just, just some side notes. Number one, his desire was never fulfilled. He wanted, in the depth of his soul, to build God's house, but he was not allowed. Do you know this happens to all of us? We, we have these deep, passionate desires that we want God to fulfill. But maybe that's not what he has for you, even though you want it. Sometimes our desires will be fulfilled by our children, as Solomon's was. But David recognized, even though he couldn't fulfill it, he still helped it being achieved. You need to do that for people. Maybe somebody has a job you want or a position. Help them. But here's the second thing. He reveals his purpose. And here's his purpose. His purpose is he is God's chosen tool to fulfill the law. What's the law? Moses told them in Deuteronomy. Moses told them in Leviticus. You have to go into promised land and wipe out the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites. Wipe them out. That's what they were told to do. Joshua tried, but then judges, they failed, and Saul failed even more miserably. So David comes in to wipe them out. And he is there to deliver Israel. It's really interesting. In 1 Samuel 8.20, the people wanted a king. They went to Samuel and they said, we want a king. Why? Because we want to be delivered from all the nations around us. We need a king. So God told Samuel, go ahead, pick a king. That's when they picked Saul. What it was the king's purpose? Fight, kill, deliver, avenge. In 1 Samuel 22, 6, 10, it, we give, um, actually, I'm sorry, go to Chronicles 22, same book. Watch how the same idea is given to David from the Lord. 1 Samuel 22, this is how David learned his purpose. 22, 6 through 10, watch what it says. So David's relaying to his son Solomon what God told him. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him, this is First Chronicles 22.6, charged him to build a house for the Lord. David said to Solomon, My son, I, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord. I wanted to build God a house. But the word of the Lord came to me. This is what God told me. You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house in my name because you have shed so much blood. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give him peace 
and quiet Israel on all his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son. I will be his father. I will establish his royal throne. So he gives even more insight. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 5. Solomon becomes king. 1 Kings 5. It's two books to the left. It's the white pages of your Bible. The ones rarely touched. And you're not touching them now, Jim. Why aren't you turning? Oh, okay. Good answer. I'll, I'll accept it. 1 Kings 5. So Solomon is relaying to the people after he becomes king David's purpose in life. And watch what he says. Second. Uh, 1 Kings 5.3, you know that David, my father, could not build a house in the name of the Lord his God. He's referring to David wanted to, my dad wanted to, but he couldn't. Why not? Well, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. So David's job was to subdue all the nations and Solomon got it. He was God's tool to fulfill the law and deliver Israel. That was David's job. And to do that, it required an awful lot of blood. First time David appeared in 1 Samuel 16, it says the Spirit of God came upon him. People looked at him and said, now here is a man of valor and a man of war. was his job. Remember the song? Saul struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So why would God purpose, this was my question, why would God's purpose for the man after God's own heart to be one of the most vicious and bloody warriors in the whole of the Bible? I tried to count up all the deaths that are attributed to David. There's probably over 100,000 for him. that He had him and his men slaughtered. I mean, there's some brutal stuff. Remember how he had to get his first wife? Read back. It's kind of gross. He's brutal. And I'll tell you, in the whole Bible, there's no one who compares to his brutality. Nobody. Except, except, chapter 14 through about 19 of the book of Revelation. But you'll have to look that up on your own. So here's my take on David's life after I was really working through this. I believe, which every what I would say reputable scholar will tell you, he's a type of Christ. He's the first anointed one that God, God chose. And his message, his life's message, is very simple. Blood before peace. Look at it like this. Remember, I, we're talking about the three kings. Saul was the first king. He's the king of pride. He was the evil king. Some people just says he displays the heart of the devil. But even more important, do you know what Saul's, mean, Saul's name means? The one they asked for. He is the human solution to handling God's will. He's the human solution. He's the human man. He's pride. Who's the guy that came after David? Solomon. What's his name mean? Peace. Solomon was chosen by God to be God's son. He was chosen. So to get from pride to peace, we needed blood. That's where David comes in. Not only does he represent the coming Christ, he's the son, he's the king, he's also the avenger of blood. He spills blood. As Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, 
there is no remission of sin. Why? This is the main gist of what trying to take the what I would say a full view of Scripture. Why is blood so necessary to be spilled? Why can't we just go right to the peace? Why can't we go right from being wicked people to peace? Why do we need blood? The Bible has three specific reasons why blood needs to be shed. And it's interesting, I once used, I once did communion where I said the blood that Jesus spilled, and somebody got really mad and said, it's the blood that was shed. And I said, what's the big deal? They said, well, spilled as the idea it was a coincidence or it just so happened that way. Shed means it was purposed. God's shed his blood. It was purposed. He had a purpose behind the shedding of Jesus' blood. He had the purpose behind David shedding blood. And there's three purposes in blood. Number one, blood reveals the seriousness of sin, the weightiness of sin. Red blood, the redness of the blood is meant to shock us. It's meant to say to us, this is wrong. I don't think the bright, thick, pasty red blood is coincidence. God meant for us to take notice when we see it. As Isaiah said, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. I don't think there's anything more vivid than red blood on white snow. Can you see how bright it is? I'll prove it to you how how just shocking it is. I didn't read you the full story of Amasa. Go back to 2 Samuel 20. I didn't read the whole thing to you. I just want you to listen to this. This is 20 verse 12. And I, again, if you think this, I am, I am going after gratuitous violence, I'm just reading the Bible. So remember when Joab took Amasa by the beard and kissed him and then stabbed him? And in verse 11 says, and one of Joab's young men, this is 2 Samuel 20, verse 11. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Then verse 12, and Amasa lay wallowing in his blood on the highway. Why? So anybody who came by stopped and they came by and then they throw him into a field and threw a garment on him but the idea of wallowing in your blood that phrase is shocking it's interesting they that same phrase is used in ezekiel chapter 16 when god's describing what the nation israel was like it said you were like an aborted baby who was wallowing in its blood that's what you're like before i came to save you sin is that wicked it makes us that terrible. I want you to go to something else. I think, I think this idea of blood is not only supposed to say our condition, but go to Romans 11. If God is the one who asked David to do this, and when you read Revelations, the last four verses, I think it's also supposed to... Um, do this for us. And I think this is terribly missing in our culture. Romans 11, verse 22. And it doesn't necessarily talk about blood, but it talks about the character of God. And it talks about how God 
cut off Israel for a while, and if we don't shape up, he might cut us off too. And he says in verse 22 of Romans 11, Note then that the kindness and severity of God, he's severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness towards you. So there are two sides to God. There's kindness, and that's all we assume God is, is kind. But he's saying he's severe to those who have fallen, those who are wallowing in their sin, in their blood. He's severe. There's assumption these days in the United States, God has no right to judge. He just needs to be kind. But right now, there's a massive hurricane that just lit up the islands in the Caribbean. There are, there are fires going on. There's an earthquake in Mexico. There was almost an avalanche in Sweden last night. There's people dying left and right. When you're a pastor, cancer becomes a weekly message. There's a nastiness to life. There's a sternness to it. And blood reveals that. It's not all peaches and cream. When God told Adam not to sin, he meant it. Blood is not pretty, nor is sin. Second reason why blood was spilled is because it's proof of death. It's the proof that somebody died. Life is in the blood, and when it is shed, it means someone has died. It's pretty simple. Go to Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, 4 and 5. This is right after the massive... Uh, I mean, you want to talk about something worse than Irma. The massive cataclysmic flood flooded the whole earth. Killed everybody but Noah and his sons and their wives. Noah gets off the ark. And God warns him, all right, you're going to establish a whole new civilization. Now listen. Verse 4 and 5. Don't eat flesh with its life that's in its blood. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, this is Genesis 9, 5. From every beast, I require it from man. From his fellow man, I require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man his image. He's saying when you shed blood, you have done something horrendous. You've destroyed the image of God, the the consequence of that should be your blood. Blood for blood. Death for death. God requires blood for sin because sin is responsible for death. I'll just give you something I think is very interesting. During our own civil war, a war that claimed more American lives than any other war, President Lincoln saw the slaughter. It was a slaughter fest, brother against brother. And before his second inaugural address, right, is getting waning moments of civil war, he made this statement. I'm sure you know it if you're a historian. This is a powerful statement. Here's what he said. God may will that the war continue until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, and that this war was the country's woe due, blood for blood. And he's basically saying every slave that died probably should be paid for with the death of a man. And that's what he was attributing the Civil War to. He's basically re appealing to 
One scholar said Psalm 19.9, which says God's judgments are true. That means they're just. They pay back exactly what is owed, blood for blood. And believe it or not, there is one death we are all responsible for. Every single sin sent the perfect man, the Son of God, to the cross. His death is on me. His blood is on my hands. It's on you. And there is blood for blood. Which brings us to the third reason why we need blood. Because it is the only acceptable ransom price. The only thing to save us from wrath. It's the only price. You can't work off your blood stains. You can't work off your debt. You can't be, and please listen, you can't be religious enough to pay God off to forgive you. You can't. What does wearing a tie or singing a few songs do to clean blood? Nothing. Psalm 49, verse 7 says, There is no price costly enough to ransom, pay for a life. And you can't ignore you can't ignore this blood price because blood cries out from the ground every time it's spilt. You remember when Abel was killed by his brother Cain? It says in Hebrews, his blood cried out to God. wonder what the son's blood cries out. It's needed to be paid for, blood for blood. We have been led to believe, and I'm telling you, Satan's a master of this, and I can hear it everywhere. We've been led to believe that sin is forgotten, there's a statute of limitations on it. If it's not judged right away, God forgets. Don't worry. If you haven't been judged for your sin, God's kind of like an old man. He forgets. But it says in 2 Thessalonians, God is just and He will pay back. He will pay back. That's what it says. Look at Romans 2.5. I know I'm having you turn a lot, but I just want you to read what the Bible says. Romans 2, verse 5. It's right after the book of Acts in the New Testament, Romans 2, verse 5. Verse 4 talks about God's kind. He's holding back. He's not judging instantly. And in verse 5, he tells us why. But because you're hard and you're impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment judgment will be revealed. It's the idea of, remember how Lincoln said blood for blood? Well, God's judgment, if you don't have a way to pay for that sin, it's stacking up. Every time you sin, it stacks up. So not only does payment need to be made, what this is saying is there's a day when it will be made. It will be made. Blood for blood. I believe to some degree, as a type, that's what David's life was all about. Under the law, David needed to kill, annihilate 
the Canaanites for these sins against God, against the land, and against Israel. That's why he came, to be the avenging king. I left one more thing off that bloody list in 2 Samuel. I didn't tell you about one more bloody thing. Actually, it ends, the very last chapter, very last couple verse, or very last couple paragraphs, ends with one more really bloody thing. I want to show you. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Do you remember when that avenging angel was going to kill 70,000? David says in verse 17 of 1 Samuel 24, I have sinned. This is verse Samuel 24, 17. I've sinned. I've done wickedly. Verse 18, Gad came to that day and said, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord. That's his priest told David, you need an altar. So it says, um, verse 24, he's going to buy this land from Aruna. He says, I'm going to buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen. And in verse 25, last verse of 2 Samuel, David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings. And peace offerings. What is that? Those are lambs that are, sli- that are sliced in the throat to let blood out. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. That blood is the last thing in that chapter. Why? Because it's a different kind of blood. The last blood is sacrificial blood. It's called atoning blood. Blood that takes the place of His blood. The sinner's blood. The blood of the innocent was shed for David. An innocent white lamb was shed for the man who deserved to die. God took David's sin very serious, and he traded blood for blood. An innocent death was exchanged. It was also a payment to satisfy the justice of God. What's very fascinating, if you read the color commentary in 1 Chronicles 22.1, David is talking about the same thing, and he says this about that altar. He tells his son that this is going to be forever the place where God's house will be, the temple. The temple, the permanent place where the blood will be shed. And sure enough, they built, they built the, the temple where all the lambs are going to be slain, the place where Jesus went. It's the same city where Jesus, the lamb, was slain. A truly innocent life is exchanged for you there. When you read through this, this is not a joke. This is not gratuitous violence. It is the only way, it is the only way to escape the severity of God. It's the only way. It's funny, on my way in, I was driving into work and I had on the news station and I listened to the warnings of the Florida's mayor. I didn't like his tone at all. I really didn't. He was stern, he was serious, and he was very dry. His presentation was really dry. I didn't like it. There were no jokes, no humor. All he kept saying is, leave now. Protect yourself. If you stay, you'll probably die. So evacuate. I didn't like his tone. Why was he so mean? Because a real, powerful hurricane is coming then why do we think, 
why do we think we can mess with someone more dangerous than Irma? Why do we sing, his blood has washed away my sin and saved me from his wrath, and we don't care? I have people coming up telling me who once went to this church, who once told me they love Christ, man, I don't believe in this stuff anymore. I'm telling you, I normally don't do this, but I just say, like the, like the mayor, escape. Escape is wrath. Hide under the blood of the innocent land. Remember, remember, blood before peace. Blood before peace. 